So we started calling this the, the Fluff to Tough Healthy Eating Workshop because it sounds cool. So it's Fluff to Tough, T-U-F-F. And it really kind of gave us a brand around what we were doing versus just calling it healthy eating or calling it paleo or whatever everybody calls it today. Um, and so it gives us, it gives us our own little flow. Uh, back, our background, I went to school for biology and biochemistry, was on track for med school and doing a lot of precepting for that. Kind of fell out of it a little bit just because I didn't necessarily want to prescribe pills as much as people wanted pills. And so I wanted to find a way to get people healthy without having the ability to give them any sort of medication. And that's what resulted in the buildup of Stone Age Fuel. It started off as a blog. And all it was was us just blogging about our thoughts on health and wellness and from a scientific perspective and from the perspective of the industry trying to market just to sell stuff. And, uh, and that's kind of how we built our following. It was just stoneagefuel.blogspot.com. And then that resulted in us going to seminars and giving this seminar. And then that ended up in us opening up a physical location. So Steph back there is the co-founder. She has a story up on the blog called Steph's Journey from Fat to Fit. It's actually pretty cool. It's how she did everything and organized herself, lost all her weight. Now she's pregnant, so she gained it all back. <laughs> but she, she has a bachelor's degree in biology as well. And then Michaela back there, we're like a family company. So Michaela back there is my sister. And then my niece and nephew are somewhere in a corner on their iPad. There they are <laughs> on their iPads. Uh, but Michaela's uh, in terms of the gym, She's a certified coach for life, which is a three-year apprenticeship program where these guys learn basically how to be, I like to explain it as they're the doctor house of fitness and wellness. So someone comes in and says, nobody can figure out what's wrong with me. I hate myself. I'm suffering. Uh, it hurts when I eat and I have all these problems. And then it's our responsibility to figure it out and fix them. And so that's what the coach for life learns. They learn both how to fix them from a nutritional perspective and how to fix them and get them healthy from a movement perspective. So it's, it's more about how well we can get people living and eliminate suffering. Um, Kayla's a massage therapist and a yoga instructor as well. So she's a jack of all trades. And I think she's taken a course called Precision Nutrition as well. So that's the crew that you have with you right now. They're exciting, incredible, and downright awesome. So the, the ideal diet that we talk about when we look at healthy eating is you hear a lot of fluff out there where it's, oh, you have to eat this way because this uh, person says it, and so-and-so. And, -and, -so. and, and so we find this person says this, and this expert says this, and this study says this, but this study says that. And you'll find there's 357,942 million different conflicting viewpoints about what you should do with your health and wellness. And really what it is, it's, it's just the industry trying to sell you stuff. Everybody wants you to buy everybody's products, and everybody wants you to jump on the new fad, and the new fad has marketing money behind it. So then the consumer just gets tricked and put in all these things because they just want to feel better. So the ideal diet is really a diet that works with you and your body. So it's not, there is no cookie. I can't tell you today, do this, and you'll be a champion, and you'll win forever. I can tell you, do this, and you'll probably lose weight. You'll probably get healthy. But down the road, you're going to have to make some shifts and adjustments and modifications to make sure this is going to help and this is going to work really well. Uh, so anybody who tells you there's a cookie cutter formula and it always works is someone who's trying to sell you something or doesn't understand the science and the biochemistry behind the metabolism and the human body or the human condition. Uh, for me, and after work, we've probably worked with 10,000 people, maybe more, doing this thing, both in town and remotely. And the, the biggest thing that we find is that you want to keep it simple when you're starting this kind of stuff. If you try to go out there and do 
if you try to start trying to count like your macros and you start trying to do like a mixture of paleo and all kinds of kinds of other random things, it's if it gets too complicated, you're not going to do it because it's not convenient to do. So if, if you have to go out and buy 9,000 new things from the grocery store, cook for seven hours every night, and do all these things, it's not gonna happen because we're, we're busy, we don't have the time to do that kind of stuff, and we need something that's gonna work simply and work easily. And, and you don't, it should be something that doesn't make you second guess yourself. So if you're in the store and you're like, oh my gosh, is, can I eat quinoa? I don't know. This one guy said, yeah, and that guy said, no. Ah, screw it, I'm just gonna eat the bread, it's fine. And, and so that's the kind of stuff that happens. You revert back to, screw it, I'm done, that's it. It was too hard. And we wanna make sure we get away from that. So the more simple it is, the better off it's going to be for us. And so the, the way we start, and the number one thing we have to start when we're doing this kind of stuff is you have to make the commitment to yourself. Number one, if you lie to yourself about starting and if you start to convince yourself that you can do other things or you don't have to do it, you're already gonna fail that initial commitment of getting started. So the biggest thing to start with is you have to look at yourself in the eye and say, hey, I'm gonna make this commitment to being healthy and I'm gonna make this commitment for myself so I can be healthy. Sometimes it helps to have an accountability partner, so a friend who will do it with you. Like, there you see, you guys got it. <laughs> so you can wake up and be like, oh, what are you doing? And you take pictures of each other's food and talk about it and work back and forth with each other. Because with, if you have that accountability partner, you're not only, if you fail, you're not only failing yourself, but you're failing your accountability partner, so it keeps you in check. And if we have a friend to do stuff, it's more fun. So the next thing that you want to start with is, in our pantry, everybody always has a little bit of healthy food and then like cookies and cake and all the other delicious stuff, right? <laughs> because everybody likes cookies and cake. Does anybody here not like that? Yeah, it's okay to say I love it because it's delicious. We know we're not supposed to eat it, but we do it anyway because it tastes good. <laughs> so the first thing you need to do in your house is clean out your pantry. So when you have these things available to you and it's not, say it's nine o'clock at night and you're like, man, I really want some ice cream. And you go in your pantry and you're like, dang, I don't have any ice cream, so I just won't eat any. But if you have it in there, you're like, I'm gonna enjoy this whole thing of ice cream. and then. Three days later, you wake up with a pint of ice cream on your chest, a liter of cola, four cheeseburgers, and you don't know what happened because you blacked out from all that delicious food. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so when we, when we do this, and in the beginning, I'll tell you kind of what the basis and the general outline to follow is, and then we'll go into weight loss, autoimmune, and athletic style protocols for everybody. But the, the general rule that we, that we roll with is if you try to stay strict forever and you never cheat or have any fun with it, you're not going to stick with it. There's no longevity in that. There's no fun in that. And it's miserable. Nobody wants to be miserable. I mean, we're supposed to eat healthy, but it's really not that, like, you wouldn't do it if you didn't have to do it because delicious foods are outside of our healthy parameters most of the time. So what we want to do is we want to organize our life into the 80-20 protocol. And the 80-20 protocol says that 80% of the time I'm gonna eat healthy, I'm gonna eat well, and I'm gonna follow a good diet. And 20% of the time I'm gonna have fun, I'm gonna eat pizza, I'm gonna have drinks with my friends, eat some cake, cookies, whatever it is. That's your 20% protocol. Just make sure that doesn't flip around and it becomes 20-80, because then, then we got problems. <laughs> so 80-20 means for us, for example, we eat healthy Monday through Saturday or Sunday usually. And we take a break, Tuesdays are for tacos and Fridays are for pizza. And those are our two meals that we cheat and we have fun with. And so we look forward to that. And we've organized our lives into a position to where we can take those two days and those are our 20% days. Not the whole day, but the actual meal itself. Because life is, is not complete without tacos and pizza. <laughs> so then the first thing we have to focus on when we're, when we're eating this is we do focus on, and from my perspective and opinion from what we know, is meat is going to be a, a main piece of this protocol. Is anyone in here vegetarian or vegan? 
Okay, so we don't even have to talk about it. There's always a question about it and we can adapt it. It's not ideal, but we can make it work with vegetarians and all those guys. But first, meat. It's okay to eat meat. I know there's a lot of conflicting studies out there who say if you eat meat, you'll end up in a, a shallow grave and you'll, you'll die a, a horrible death and you'll be stabbed in the heart 19 times with an ice pick and all these things about how horrible meat is. But in reality, meat isn't, it's not meat that's bad. It's the way the meat is produced and consumed and sent to us that makes it good or bad. And the meat that we want to focus on, we can eat beef. Beef is fine. All those studies about beef being dangerous and scary and bad are generally from cattle that's fed grains and finished with grains. And what happens is it's a way to fatten the cattle up quick, but then they get sick because it's not an ideal diet for them. And then we have to fill them with antibiotics. And because of that, we consume that and we become resistant to those antibiotics. And that's why we're seeing like a lot of big antibiotic strains that are not allowing you to fight those strains when you, when you consume them. So meat, we want to focus on a grass-fed, grass-finished beef. And the reason we like grass-fed beef is because it's their standard natural diet. What happens with the grass when the beef are fed is they eat the grass, they consume ALA, which is a form of omega-3 fatty acids in a vegetarian-style diet. But the, the critical piece that's the most important is the beef actually turn that into EPA and DHA, which is the kind that we're actually able to consume in the most efficient way. And that's what we want. It's basically like eating fish oil. If you just consume ALA from like nuts and seeds and vegetarian sources, you may be, you're, you'll be lucky if you transition 5% of it. So by allowing the cattle to do it, we get a much better variety. And it's the same thing with fish. They eat the algae, they convert it for us, and then we eat it and we enjoy the benefits of their conversion. And then, so after beef, we want to focus on free-range turkey, pork, and chicken. Any of those are fine. We just, two things here, we want to make sure the animals aren't living horrible lives, and we want to make sure what we're consuming isn't full of antibiotics that are going to make us resistant to those strains. So free-range turkey, pork, and chicken, the grass-fed, grass-finished beef, and fish, we want to focus on wild-caught fish. You want to, if you can, find a sustainable variety of, variety of wild-caught fish. Because what happens with fish, it's the same thing. If they're not wild caught and they're farm raised, they're in a gestation crate the size of this table, and they're eating their own feces and corn and fed antibiotics and all of that stuff. So they're not, it's not a healthy variety of fish if it, it's not wild caught. We are starting to see a lot more sustainable varieties where it is like a farm raised salmon, but it's raised in a sustainable, unique environment where they're not eating their own fish or feces. But it's really hard to figure out. So if you can, go, err, err on the side of wild caught. And then eggs. Everybody always asks about eggs, and I'll talk about cholesterol in a little bit, but free-range eggs are okay, and they're not going to affect your cholesterol from dietary intake. So it's funny. We started talking about this in like 2012, maybe earlier. When was that? 2010, 9? And in 11, I would be like, you can eat eggs. And then the tarred and feather would come out. Like the people would start flipping cars and throwing Molotov cocktails everywhere. I'd be like, no, I'll die from cholesterol. <laughs> and fast forward to today, science actually supports the fact that dietary intake of cholesterol doesn't actually harm or affect your cholesterol. So it's kind of cool to look back and be like, we did it. We were right. <laughs> uh, so, but eggs and salt will kill us. Uh, what we find is you have a pathway in your body that controls cholesterol biosynthesis, and that's the mevalonic pathway of cholesterol biosynthesis. And you have a specific enzyme in there called HMG-CoA-CoA reductase, and the responsibility of that enzyme is to regulate cholesterol biosynthesis. And what that means is when you consume too much from a diet, it just shuts it off and doesn't allow you to use it. When you don't consume enough, it tells your body to actually produce it and continue using it. And so that enzyme is a key regulating component 
component of managing your cholesterol. Now there is a situation to where this wouldn't work and you wouldn't have that enzyme, which is familial hypocholesteremia. Nobody suffers from that in here, do they? You'd know if you did. You'd have a strict diet that you'd be on and all that. Um, so that would be the only reason that we would say that cholesterol would have an impact on your health from a dietary intake point, point of view. If, you got, if we had this working, so this is a small picture of what the cholesterol biosynthesis pathway looks like from a standard immunology textbook that I had in college. Probably shouldn't show you guys this. It's illegal, just kidding. Uh, so when you, when you look here, the, the key important pieces are, this is HMG-CoA reductase, the key regulating enzyme. And so right here is the synthesis of cholesterol in your body, because if you don't take enough in, your body's gonna synthesize its own, because it is a critically important nutrient. Without it, we will die. And so if you, if you, take, in, if you take in too much here, HMG-CoA reductase is gonna stop the synthesis of cholesterol in your body, so then you won't synthesize it anymore because you have enough. Same thing with dietary intake. If you consume it and you have an oversupply of cholesterol, HMG-CoA reductase is gonna inhibit the production of the cholesterol and stop it from going into your body and producing too much. And so it's, it's a fairly effective regulating mechanism that we didn't understand well in the past, but we do now. Same, so when we look at salt, Sodium intake, and we're starting to see in, in modern literature and a lot of studies, is only 5 to 10% of people are actually affected by high sodium intake. So salt isn't necessarily the thing that's been the big problem. What we're finding is the big problem has been cascading inflammation in the body from the kind of diets we've been eating of just crappy food and not taking care of ourselves. And it's just a cascading effect of your body falling apart. So we don't have a lot of evidence that says that so a low sodium diet is actually going to reduce your sodium problems or anything like that. It's more of an inflammation problem. This is a, a study I always put on here. Uh, low sodium diet is not associated with hypertension. Uh, the key here was the fact that this low sodium diet that, the, that we put these guys on and that they went through did not actually decrease their, their hypertension levels. And it, it increased their risk for cardiovascular disease and a couple of other parameters. But, so what we found was it wasn't necessarily the low sodium diet that had any effect on that. So now that we got out of all that fun stuff, let's, let's talk about the next piece. So meat is number one. If you ever watched our videos on Facebook, I think I say the same thing every time, eat meat and veggies, and in just in different ways, and I put face filters on myself. So uh, the next thing we want to eat after meat is veggies. You, veggies are really important. They're one of the most important things we can include, and just by sticking to a diet of meat and veggies, you've already put yourself a step ahead of the game, and it's simple. Anybody can find a hunk of meat, and anybody can find a veggie. You can walk out there right now and be set for the whole month, unless it all goes bad. Uh, so veggies, taste the rainbow is what my big thing is. You, you want to go out there and figure out what's in season, which is usually the cheapest option, and eat that and get a huge variety of veggies. Always trying to al alternate and always trying to shift through and learn what's new. In the summer, it's really neat because we can go to the farmer's market. And in the farmer's market, we can get what's in season and what the farmers are selling. We know it's local. Local is probably the most important piece. If you can get it local, that's a winning strategy. Organic would be the second most important but local will win overall because you, you can talk to that farmer and ask them what they're doing and ask them how they're producing it and really grill them on it. You'll find a lot of smaller farmers can't afford the organics program and they might have a higher quality product, they just can't get into the bureaucracy of it all and pay for everything. Uh, fruits. Uh, so we do, in the weight loss protocol, we restrict our fruits a little bit because it's easy to eat just a handful of berries and be like, woo, I'm healthy. And then you accidentally consume like 9,000 calories from sugar. So fruits, what we really stick with are berries. I'm a big fan of berries. They're easy to consume. They have fiber in them. And they're a fruit that's not going to impact your glycemic load quite a bit. 
so what we stick with is berries, strawberries, cherries, blueberries, blackberries, all of those things. What we'll do is we'll do about a handful a day. So if you're smart, you'll do blueberries because you can get an actual handful of blueberries. Cherries, you get like five. <laughs> uh, nuts and seeds. I, from my perspective, and when I was studying biology and biochemistry, my big focus was microbiology and the human metabolism and the immunology side of things. So the autoimmune disorders and a lot of that. And what I found was, and this is true for me personally as well, was nuts and seeds tend to cause problematic problems inside our gut. They cause gut irritation, you eat them, and you get that feeling where you have to go to the bathroom right now or you're gonna have really big problems. So that's one of the reasons we avoid nuts. Seeds especially, I avoid all seeds. Most nuts, and this is the secondary reason why we avoid these, is they're too high in omega-6 fatty acids and not high enough in omega-3 fatty acids. And where, we at, where we're at in society right now is omega-6s are favored in, versus omega-3s. You're getting like a 300 to one, when really we need like a one to one or a one to five. We need that omega-3 to come back in. So if you're consuming nuts that are high in omega-6s, you're increasing the potential for the inflammation in your body to keep going up and to not go down. And our whole point in this whole diet and healthy eating is to lower inflammation levels because that's what's going to make you feel better. It's going to make your joints stop hurting. It's going to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, hypertension, and a lot of these autoimmune problems. Do you have a question, Michaela? What about cashews? Cashews are okay. Uh, I'd say they're like, they're like a hybrid middle ground. You can probably get away with eating them. Nut butters, that's another good one, right? So uh, before, walnuts, macadamia nuts are probably my favorite to consume. They're, they're generally more favorable towards like omega-3 fatty acids. Cashews are pretty good, so I think you can get away with cashews. Uh, in, if you're like a paleo purist or whatever, they're like, you can't eat cashews because they're poisonous. And I'm like, no, the shell's poisonous, the seed's not. <laughs> so that you, they'll be okay and you can get away with eating those. Nut butters are, I mean, if you're eating walnut or macadamia nut butter, those are okay, they're not too bad. Uh, what's another, almond butter is really popular right now. I would limit them a little bit because you just don't want to spoon feed yourself a, a bucket of nut butter. What's that Oh, like the peanut butter powder. Yeah. So with We'll get into legumes a little bit and peanuts. Uh, we tend to avoid them because the minerals that they're supposed to come with are not bioavailable. They just become bound to the peanut and you don't actually get anything out of it. They're great for protein if you're like a vegan or something like that. But I'll usually avoid peanuts and peas and beans and a lot of that stuff. Corn? No corn. Yeah, we'll avoid. Corn's a filler and it's a heavily modified, not, so I'm not against genetically modified crops necessarily but they're one of the more modified crops that will cause problems and one of the crops that have potential issues to just be a filler food. So coconut products. I'm a real big fan of coconut and we've been talking about the benefits of this since back in 2011 when they said saturated fats were the worst thing in the world. And if you consume saturated fats, you're gonna die that shallow death and you'll never be the same again. Your face will become disfigured and you'll become the man in the iron mask. And so that's not actually where it's at. What, what the problem is, when we try to characterize something like simply like, oh, you can't have saturated fats. And you, if you ask someone who says that, why? They say, I don't know, because I, someone said so somewhere. I think I read it in Home and Garden Magazine. And, and so then you say, well, okay, so let's look at saturated fats. There's a bunch of different varieties inside the saturated fat. There's lauric acid. There's all kinds of different fats in there. And we have to characterize those by what's healthy and what's not and what's in the food based on what those fats have. So coconut products. We'll start with coconut water, nature's Gatorade. 
So if you're consuming something, if you're out running or you're hustling or you're moving around, coconut water is gonna be your best bet. Get the stuff that doesn't have a bunch of sugar added to it, because you'll find like the new one that's like this big and there's 975,000 grams of sugar added to the actual coconut water. There's gonna be sugar in it, but you want it just to say, the label should say coconut water and that's it. Then coconut milk. I'm a big fan of coconut milk. It's rich in medium chain triglycerides, which promote weight management without affecting your cholesterol levels. Medium chain, chain triglycerides are really neat because they metabolize like glucose. They act like a carbohydrate. So a lot of, we were finding a while back, a lot of endurance athletes were using MCTs as a fuel, as an alternative fuel when they're trying to be like keto and stuff like that. And they didn't want to take in a bunch of fats that they thought were gonna cause problems or not allow them to utilize their fuel source right away. Um, saturated fats and coconut milk are mostly lauric acid. And if you're familiar with lauric acid, what it does is it's good for raising your HDL, your high density lipoproteins, which is your good cholesterol. So you'll find that there are a ton of benefits from coconut products and they can become a great addition for what you're doing. So in the mornings, instead of a glass of milk, you just have a glass of coconut milk and you've effectively reduced your load right there. Oils. We often cook in, butter's great to cook in. You wanna get grass-fed, grass-finished butter, because it's the same thing. The fats are gonna be from omega-3 fatty acids, and you're gonna have a more healthy variety. We will cook in coconut oil as well. Uh, ghee, is every, anyone familiar with ghee? It's just clarified butter. It's like you cook the butter and scrape off the top, so it's another great cooking option. Lard can be okay if you're getting the stuff from the grass-fed, grass-finished animals. Uh, well, for salads, because a lot of people like to eat salads and they want to know what kind of dressing to consume, it's usually air on the side of the clear dressings. When you look at like your Caesars and your ranches and all those dressings that are freaking delicious, they're also not so healthy. <laughs> so we want to use like an olive oil plus a vinegar or a vinaigrette, stuff like that works really well. Be careful with clear dressings though, because you'll get like the cherry flavored vinaigrette and you'll look at it and it's like, Oh, wow, that cherry was just a bunch of sugar they added to it. That's why it's so delicious. You tricked me again, you stupid marketing label. Mm -hmm. And drinks. So the last thing that we want to, or not the last thing, but one of the last things in this segment is drinks. So we want to consume coffee, tea, water, and maybe some coconut water and stuff like that, coconut milk. Coffee and tea sometimes get a bad rap, especially coffee, because people are like, oh, I need to go on a caffeine detox diet, and I need to do this, I need to eat liquid calories for nine weeks. Mm -hmm. But really with coffee and tea, what we found is coffee doesn't pose a problem, and it actually helps your insulin sensitivity, whether or not it's caffeinated up to six cups a day. That's a lot of coffee every day. Does anybody drink more than six cups? Does anybody drink more than like two 24 ounce cups? That's fine, you, it won't hurt you. Because <laughs> eight, 16, 24, 32, we're, we're okay. So coffee's not gonna pose a problem. The problem that comes with coffee, and my, I myself drink a lot of coffee, especially cold brew. How, do you guys drink cold brew? It's like the greatest thing ever. <laughs> you cold brew for 16 hours and then you can drink your coffee. I don't care if it's like negative 13 degrees outside and I'm walking through the snow shivering, I'll still drink my cold brew. <laughs> Uh, so coffee, just don't put anything in it. Don't add your milks, don't add your sugars and all that stuff. You want to drink your coffee black and drink your tea straight. Those are going to be the best ways to consume it. Sometimes it's hard to, to get used to, but you'll eventually get used to it and you'll like it after a while. Does anybody not like black coffee or tea? You're like, I don't. <laughs> so the way you can start with that is maybe get like a little bit of coconut milk and put that in there as a creamer so that can be an alternative. 
to get rid of the other creamers and stuff like that. You can use like a, a grass-fed half and half. They have it here in the store, which works really well. Just get away from the sugars and stuff like that. Don't add like sweetener and what else do we add to coffee now? We add like sugars. You go to Starbucks and you're like, I need my mocha choca frappuccino. <laughs> Sir, it's six, yeah. Sir, it's six o'clock in the morning. Yeah, and I like whipped cream with that and a puppuccino for the dog. <laughs> hey, those are your cheat days. Right? Yeah, that's right, that's your cheat day. <laughs> Uh, and so liquid calories outside of that, I avoid protein shakes, anything that comes in liquid form that could be any sort of meal replacement, I'll 100% get rid of when I'm trying to lose weight. Because when you think about it, if you drink a protein shake, it's a liquid calorie, you're gonna feel full for 13 seconds, be hungry 29 minutes later. And that's gonna put us into a roller coaster of just eating and getting hungry and eating and getting hungry, which is your glycemic index raising and lowering, raising and lowering your body trying to combat it. So avoid those liquid calories outside of coffee, tea, and water, the coconut water and the coconut milk and all those good things. When we look at fructose-based drinks, and this isn't just high fructose corn syrup, obviously we shouldn't consume that because it's usually what's in like Coke and stuff and all those delicious drinks, but fructose tends to be metabolized in the liver. And so if someone has a problem with triglycerides or like high triglycerides, the fructose that gets metabolized in the liver gets turned into triglycerides. So that's gonna be what creates problems in that environment for people. Also, when you see low glycemic foods, so can you guys name any low glycemic sweeteners or products? What is there, like agave, and probably like 9,000 other products with the same name, but the same, or different name, but the same ingredient? Those are, tend to be high fructose. So you just wanna be careful with anything that says low glycemic, because you know you're gonna get a huge fructose load from it. You'd be better off just eating like organic table sugar. Sleep, this, is, this one's fun. Who, I can tell you from my point, I sleep, I don't sleep very much, but it doesn't affect me as much. If Steph doesn't sleep, we'll get her back there falling asleep while I talk. <laughs> she doesn't even care. She's heard this a million times. But uh, sleep, our society is chronically underslept. And it's one of the reasons why we have inflammation problems, why we can't recover, why we feel depressed, why we're not in the right state of mind. It's why we can't be productive, why you can't focus. It's why we have anxiety and a lot of these problems because your body needs that sleep to repair itself, to fix what's going on and to kind of reevaluate and move back into the next day or be prepared for it. It's, it's like if you had a, a car running with no oil for seven days straight, that thing's gonna break down and fall apart. Same thing with your body. With no sleep, it can't, it can't get its gears moving and it can't repair itself and heal. So sleep, is it should be six to eight hours minimum every night. Some people get, can get away with six, some people can get away, need like 19 hours of sleep a day. Like if you ask Steph how much you want to sleep, she would say yes. <laughs> yeah, so and we're, and we're all different. It can be anywhere from six to 12 hours. Nobody ever gets 12 hours of sleep. That would be a dream world. But six to eight hours is generally a pretty good zone. If you wake, if you're sleeping six hours a night and you're tired every day, move it up an hour. If you're still tired, move it up an hour and figure out why you're tired and what's going on. Uh, so when you think about sleeping too, we wanna make sure the room we're sleeping in is dark and there's no like artificial light coming in. People who sleep with the TV on tend to upset their circadian rhythm and create problems in their ability to actually sleep. So you wanna make sure that the lights are off, the little Apple TV white light that wakes me up at night is off, the actual TV itself's off, like the blinds are closed and all that. So that way you get good sleep in a dark room that's not gonna upset the patterns of your sleep. When you think about sleep deprivation, there's two hormones that get affected. When you don't sleep enough, it's going to raise ghrelin, 
which is a hormone that signals the body to eat. So if you think when you're chronically underslept, underslept you're going to eat more often the next day, and you're going to eat more just because your body thinks it needs to eat more to repair itself because it doesn't have sleep. And it lowers leptin which is a hormone that signals the body to stop eating. So if you don't have enough leptin, but you have more ghrelin, you're just gonna be hungry all the time. You're gonna be consuming food all day and not understand why. And it's because we're underslept. Any questions so far? Yeah. Were there good precautions for like when you don't get enough sleep? Like I, what you do throughout the day or the next day? Yeah, so like how you can get more sleep? Yeah, and deal with like so. Say you can't sleep according to like work and everything. Mm -hmm. And so, what do you like? What's a good way to cope? I'd say, are you talking about like shift work or something like yeah. that? Yeah. So I think when you're like shift work's hard because your day is different than anybody else. If you're like on a three to eleven or eleven to seven graveyard or something like that, you just shift your day around. So eleven to seven, you get off work and you're gonna sleep from eight a.m. to three p.m. or whatever. But the key is when you're on shift work, especially when you're sleeping and it's daylight out or something like that, you can like black out your blinds, black out your room, so that way when you sleep, it feels like it's night and you're getting that, that good amount of sleep. Does that make sense? And another way, if you're having problems actually sleeping, it's usually because we don't have enough magnesium and we're not intaking enough. And we'll talk about magnesium in a second, but that can be one of the biggest contributing factors to it. The other thing is when you go to sleep and you're like this, on your phone and then you wake up and your phone's on your face. That's probably something else that we're creating that's a problem. So you can take your electronics, most of them have like night mode now. So your iPhone, you shift off, turn on night mode and it makes the light look like yellow. So it makes it a lot easier for your eyes to adjust and to drift off to sleep. I would stop looking at that stuff like an hour before you go to bed if you can. Any other questions? Perfect, good time. So we're gonna talk about the weight loss protocol now. What we find works really well for weight loss and what really helps people out for weight loss. So weight loss, the benefits, obviously you're gonna see lean muscle mass, increase in energy, increase metabolism, and improved overall health, which is what we ultimately want, what we're looking for. And like we talked about earlier, the way to start losing weight is to make the commitment to yourself that you're actually gonna do it. A lot of us like to fake the funk and say we're gonna do it, and then we're, three weeks later we're like, dang, I totally forgot. I ate 30 cheeseburgers, I enjoyed Coke, I had pizza, life was good, I drank a lot of beer, but I forgot to eat healthy. <laughs> so uh, when you think about that, you're gonna make the commitment to yourself, you're gonna clean out your pantry, you're gonna start with 30 days strict on weight loss, because what we need to do is, when you think about establishing a habit, it takes 21 days to establish any sort of habit and get yourself in the mindset to keep doing it, and because you have to establish a routine with it as well. So the way we start this is we'll go into the 80-20 protocol at the end of the 30 days, but the first 30 we want to go strict seven days a week so we can get at least those 21 days and get that habit established and make a routine around what we're doing. Because if we have a habit and a routine, we're much more likely to actually follow through and keep doing it. Because in the human condition, we need a sort of way to go. We need a pathway to follow and we need a routine to make sure we're on and we need to be not confused. So your, your first week and your third week tend to be most, challenge, most challenging. First week, because it's new, and you're like, I'm hungry 24-7. I hate this. I'm trying to figure this out. This other guy, I don't know what I'm doing. And then the third week, you're starting to shift and transition and getting better, and you're still at that point. You're like, oh, I'm hungry now. And this week, I was great in week two, and now I'm tired all the time. And it's just us adjusting from a, a poor diet back to the diet where we're actually eating healthy and taking care of ourselves. If you can get through the first month, you'll be fine, and you'll crush it after that. I always say too, when you're doing this, the, the day, on day one, the day you make that commitment to start, take before and after pictures of yourself. Because with it, when you do commit to it, after 
let's say you've been doing it for six months, you're gonna start to lose the feeling of the progress and you're gonna not be able to see what's going on. But if you have those before and after pictures once a month you took or once a week at the beginning, you're gonna be able to look back and be like, wow, look how much progress I made. Look how amazing I am. Look how well I did. And that's gonna give you that confidence that you need to keep moving forward. We all need confidence. We all need to feel like we're doing well because if we don't, we're not gonna see a reason why we should continue. Weight loss, what do we eat? Same thing we talked about earlier. We wanna eat lean meats, grass-fed, grass-finished beef, free-range organic fish, turkey, wild-caught fish, turkey, chicken, pork, vegetables. Every meal should have vegetables in it, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks. And we wanna taste the rainbow and eat what's in season, preferably local. Like here's great, they always have something local going on. Taste the rainbow, try a different thing every time. You're gonna get vegetables that you think are disgusting, so just throw those out, skip it, and find the new ones. Figure out what you like and eat those things. You don't wanna get into the, the mindset of where vegetables are gross green things and you have to choke them down because then you're just gonna be like, oh, every meal I feel like I'm gonna throw up in my own mouth. So figure out what you like, taste a variety, and really stick with what's gonna make work for you. If you're like me, you can eat different things all the time and be okay, but if you're like someone who needs an actual pathway and needs like a strict routine, you're gonna want those specific vegetables that you eat all the time. Then we want to eat eggs. Free range and organic eggs are great in the mornings because if you start eating this way, you're gonna have some sort of veggie, and maybe some eggs in the morning when you start your day off. Then fruits, stick with berries. Like we talked about earlier, drinks are gonna be water, coffee, and tea, black. A lot of people say at this point, but I need my carbs. What am I gonna do if I can't eat noodles and vegetables, or not vegetables, noodles, and all those delicious things that make my heart smile because I like them, and they're, they're amazing. So in order to achieve this, we really want our bodies to, we're doing a big reduction in carbohydrates generally with the standard American diet or what we call the SAD diet. Uh, and with the SAD diet, it's 300 grams of carbohydrates a day. It's just trying to consume as much pastas, breads, rices, and cereals as possible, but we're gonna reduce that a lot and increase your intake of vegetables a lot. So those are your new carbohydrate and your new best friend is your vegetables. And then we're including meats to give us the protein that we need in order to make that work. At the beginning, you may end up, if you consume less than 50 grams of carbohydrates a day, it puts you in a sort of ketosis, which is using ketone bodies as the fuel for your body to actually move forward because you don't have the carbohydrates to consume and use that as fuel anymore. Ketosis can be okay and be good to stay in for maybe a period of a couple, like two to three weeks, maybe the first month, but we generally don't wanna stay in that 50 grams or less period for a long time. It's just not as healthy and it's, it's not gonna put you in a sustainable environment. So you wanna focus on about 100 to 150 grams of those carbohydrates a day, which is gonna put you in a good maintenance zone. 50 to 100 is gonna put you in a weight loss zone. Less than 50 is gonna be rapid weight loss, but I would say that it's less than ideal for overall health and longevity. So think 50 to 100, regular weight loss, 100 to 150 good maintenance. So, and then this, this next point is incredibly important. This is one of the things that everybody should tune in. When you're learning to eat this kind of way, you have to understand portion control to a degree. Now, I don't tell people when they're new to dieting and trying to eat healthy, you need to weigh and measure all your food and make sure it's all prepackaged and portioned because they're gonna look at me and be like, dude, that's out of control. Like, I can't take the time to weigh and measure all my food and I feel like a neurotic crazy person now. So what we wanna do is we just need to understand the difference between a mouth and a vacuum cleaner. So we need to understand that we have to eat to about 80% satiety. So you don't wanna be like, back when grandma was sitting at the table and she's like, you need to finish your whole plate of food and your, your, this person's plate and that plate. 
it's because those starving kids over there overseas need, need that food, or for whatever reason, those kids are somehow going to be not getting enough food because you didn't finish your plate. But real, in reality, what we need to do is we need to make sure that we eat to about 80% full. You don't want to eat, like clean your plate every day, and you don't want to get into that point where eating, like you, you're going to explode and where you feel like you just you can't handle anymore, like sushi comas. Who's had those? <laughs> those are bad. Yeah, cheat days. Don't do sushi comas every day, just on cheat day. And then take a seven-hour nap afterward. <laughs> so take your time eating. You, you don't want to get there and be like, boom, 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 boom. And then 13 seconds later, you're like, holy crap, I just ate that whole plate and didn't choke and die. You don't want to do that because that's the vacuum cleaner protocol. We want to be like, take your time. should take you 15 to 20 minutes to eat, sit there. If you're on break at work, Maybe you're taking 10 minutes to eat or whatever, but just make sure that you take your time to eat. When you feel about 80% full, which is when you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm starting to feel full. If I eat any more, I'll get to that point to where I'm going to explode. And then you say, okay, I'm gonna stop eating. Eat when you're hungry, don't eat when you're not. There's no real benefit to eating, like the bodybuilders say, six times a day. It doesn't make any sense from a scientific perspective as to why that would make a difference. Now, when we talk about getting stuck, we can eat more or less and see what happens and how we can adjust and modify to make that work better. But you really just want to eat when you're hungry. And don't get into the mental condition where you start to convince yourself that you're not hungry. Because I've worked with people in the past and they're like, I'm not losing weight. I'm like, well, what's going on? How much are you eating? Oh, I'm eating one time a day. Why, why are you eating one time a day? Let's talk about this. I just don't feel like I'm hungry. Why are you not hungry? Let's, get, let's dig deep in this. Well, I've kind of convinced myself that I'm not hungry. Okay, so you are hungry, but now we've created a mental condition around it. So make sure that you're not convincing yourself mentally that you're not hungry. When you feel it, do it. There's a movie when the kid sits there and he says, when I feel it, I do it. So do that with eating. And finally, with calories, you want, to, you want to monitor them and pay attention so you know kind of what you're eating, but don't fixate on them. Don't get into this mindset where you have to know every single calorie and every single thing that's going on. Just pay attention to the sugar you're consuming, the amount of proteins, the amount of carbs, and the amount of fats, so you have a general idea of what you're consuming and what you're doing. So if you need to adjust or modify in the future, if you ever get stuck, you at least have a baseline to go off of. And when you're, when you're stuck, so maybe you're six weeks in and your weight loss is completely stuck, you've reached your healthy, healthy homeostasis, which is what your body wants to be in, how do you get unstuck? That's one of the next big problems. And homeostasis is basically when your body's at a point to where it's, it's regulated and it's comfortable with where you're at. It's going to do this a lot during your weight loss pathway and it's why people get stuck. And when you think about the way weight gain works, weight gain gives you, you get fat cells. But when you lose weight, those fat cells don't go away, they just shrink. And that's why it's so easy for people to gain and lose, gain and lose, gain and lose, if they don't put themselves on a good protocol and a good pathway like 80-20. So you wanna reevaluate everything when you get stuck. What do your portions look like? Is my plate like veggies and then I decided I'm gonna eat like a plate of rice with everything now? Or did I decide to eat on a giant like 24 ounce T-bone steak and then a little bit of veggies? We need to reevaluate our portions. What do they look like and is it what we need to be at? You should think your half your plate should be veggies and then a quarter of your plate should be protein. Then maybe you have a little sliver for fats. You add in avocados and stuff like that, coconuts and all those delicious products. Then you need to evaluate, are you still eating fruit? Did you decide to eat four handfuls of fruit a day? Are you eating a handful of almonds a day? Are you eating a bucket of almonds a day? It's really easy to take a bucket of almonds and eat the whole thing and be like, huh, I just consumed 5,000 calories in a sitting. Oops. <laughs> and then are you getting enough sleep? 
Are you exercising? Did you stop ex exercising? Did you ever start? Are you stressed out? What's stressing you out? How do you reduce, reduce that stress? Are you fixating on the scale? Are you waking up every day looking at that scale and being like, nothing's changing, I hate myself? We need to make sure we get away from that kind of, that kind of mentality and attitude and make sure that when we step on the scale, it's like a once every two weeks type of thing. And, if this, and at the same time, we need to be focusing on measuring our waist and our hips. If you understand what those measurements look like in addition to the scale, if the scale stops moving but the measurements start continue moving, you know that you're doing well and you're in a, in a good way. So maybe jump on the scale once every two weeks or once a week at first, but don't get in the habit of doing it every day because you're going to start to get neurotic about it. Steph starts getting neurotic about it sometimes. <laughs> so, uh, and then if you're really stuck and nothing, after you've reevaluated all those things and it's still not working, one thing you can do is maybe add in a little bit of intermittent fasting. All it's going to do is adjust your body's healthy homeostasis to re-regulate and to adjust and modify. Your, you're essentially tricking it to go up and down and come back to where we need to be. Intermittent fasting should be maybe start with one time a week. Don't get into the habit where the guys are like, I intermittent fast four days a week for 16 hours. I'm like, That's not healthy, man. We need to get away from that. He's like, you're literally not eating. <laughs> so intermittent fasting is basically when you don't eat for 16 hours. The best way to do this is 5 o'clock p.m. you stop eating and then you just sleep and you wake up and you start eating again when the 16 hours has elapsed, which allows you to sleep through most of it, so it's not a huge problem. Start off with one time a week and then maybe a couple months down the road if you're stuck again, go to two, but you really don't have to go beyond two when you're doing this. It's just something to adjust and shock what we're doing. After the first 30 days focusing on the weight loss, you want to add some of the foods maybe that you add some of your cheat foods back in, start doing that 80-20. Don't let it flip into a 20-80 because that's when you wake up three days later with a cheeseburger wrapper on your face and a liter of cola in front of you. You want to make sure that you add in, maybe you add in, okay, I'm going to add in Taco Tuesdays now because I love tacos. Or you say, oh, I'm going to add in Pizza Friday or I'm going to add in Friday night drinks with my friends. Those kind of things we can add in back and see what happens. So you add it back in, see how your weight management stays, see how it flows. If it's fine and it's still moving well, you're good. If it's not, maybe you just went a little too crazy. So cut back a little bit on what's going on. But one meal a week isn't going to have a, prop, a huge effect on that. So one thing I like to show when we're doing this is Steph, she's a terrible example now because she's pregnant. <laughs> But uh, this was her story back in the day. She was a little gymnast, a tiny little Asian girl. And uh, so she, she kind of ballooned up at some point in her college career from too much partying and having fun. And too much, she talks about how she loved like Chick-fil-A and KFC. What, what did you like, Panera? Yeah, all that food that's really, really good for you. Uh, so she ballooned up, but then she lost it all. So she followed the same exact protocol, the same exact thing, stuck with it gained a lot, and then lost a lot. And so, wow, she even got a tan. Jeez. <laughs> but this was kind of where she was at. This was her college years when she was having too much fun. And then as she progressed along, she became better and better. And it's, it's been a long-term commitment for her. She still has ups and downs and fluctuations and stuff like that. So it's not something that happens overnight. It's something that happens as a product of you living your life. I think that's where we get into a big problem in the fitness industries, we think there's going to be a quick fix for something. Or we go and we do like Barry's Big Booty Boot Camp, and we lose it. But then we stop Barry's Big Booty Boot Camp, and we gain it all back. I don't think that's an actual business, but I like to reference that a lot. <laughs> Maybe I'll start Chandler's Big Booty Boot Camp someday. <laughs>
So when, we, when the next thing I like to talk about is autoimmune style diseases. So there's a lot of people who have like type two diabetes, who have multiple sclerosis, who have all these different problems who that get characterized as autoimmune diseases. And the reason they are is because it's a problem with something in your gut. And it's a, a disease and a symptom we don't necessarily understand from a medical viewpoint. So it just gets kind of thrown into the category of autoimmune diseases. Big things to worry about here are, do, does my stomach hurt when I eat? Do I have skin issues, skin problems, psoriasis, any like acne, stuff like that? Is, do I just not feel okay most of the time? Do I eat and I feel like I'm gonna throw up? Stuff like that is characterized as maybe potentially being an autoimmune disease. And so when we look at this, it's not about weight loss when we eat for autoimmune health. It's about easing suffering and suffering less because we don't, nobody should have to eat and feel like they're gonna throw up. We did a fluff the tough thing a few years ago and one of the girls came up to me and she was like, hey, this has been the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. When I eat, I used to feel like I threw up at every meal, so I wouldn't want to eat. And now when I eat, I don't feel like I'm going to throw up anymore. And so that's what we want. We want to ease and reduce suffering. We don't care about weight loss with autoimmune cases. We care about making the problems go away or at least go into remission. And so it's about, and it's an elimination diet. It has to be 100% straight. <coughs> does anybody have any autoimmune problems or know anybody who does? Perfect. So these are the kinds of things you can talk to them about. It's 100% strict. We don't cheat on this because any sort of cheating in this autoimmune protocol eliminates the elimination diet. And then you can cause the hole to be repunched in your gut. And what's happening is your body's basically attacking itself, thinking you're, the food you're consuming is a foreign invader, and it puts holes in your gut. And I had a guy perfectly characterize this a while back when we were doing this seminar at the, what was it, the University of Oregon or something? But he said, so... Like, you're punching a hole in your gut, you're, you're just pooping in your blood. And I was like, exactly. So you're, you don't want to poop in your blood because it causes these kinds of problems. So what do you not eat in autoimmune disease? Protocol, or in the autoimmune protocol, you, you want to avoid, what we're going to do is we're going to avoid a lot of foods that could be potentially problematic and create allergy issues. So you don't want to eat eggs or nightshades, like eggplants and tomatoes. We want to avoid peppers, including bell peppers and hot peppers. They have a compound called capsaicin that causes problems. Nightshades cause problems. We want to avoid most spices, all nuts and seeds, dairy grains, and alcohol. All of those things, not because we're trying to make people eat paleo or anything like that. It's because we want to make sure that we get rid of the things that could be potentially causing problems and punching a hole in the gut. And when you think about it, grains, people have, can maybe have a sensitivity to gluten. Maybe they have a sensitivity to the protein found in gluten gliadin. Maybe they have a casein sensitivity. Maybe the things in nuts are causing them to attack themselves because it's a plant-based product that doesn't want you to eat it. Peppers, the hot compound, okay, that might be causing the problem. So we need to eliminate everything so we can reintroduce things down the line and then say, okay, this is what was causing the problem and now I know and understand. And so when you're eating autoimmune, the things you wanna eat are veggies, excluding the nightshades, Fruits you can have, fruits are fine. Remember, we're not focusing on weight loss here. Coconut products tend to be pretty well tolerated on this. Fermented foods are really good because you're in introducing probiotics, which are very good beneficial bacteria. And then meat and seafood are fine. So when you're doing this, you're essentially focusing on healing your gut. And we wanna make sure that we have six to eight weeks of strictly eating this way. Once those six to eight weeks are over, you can reintroduce nightshades and spices and a lot of that thing, those things, one food for one week and see what happens. Do I feel good? Am I fine? Okay, keep that food. Now reintroduce another food. Okay, I reintroduce this thing. Holy crap, 
my life sucks, everything hurts again, and I can't breathe. Okay, eliminate that food, we figured out a problem. So it's really, that's the Dr. House. Does everybody know who Dr. House is? Yeah. It's my favorite thing to reference. And sometimes people are like, who's that? And I'm like, oh my gosh, and there's no pop culture here. <laughs> Steph forced me to watch it actually, otherwise I'd have no idea. <laughs> so the Dr. House of Fitness really is just figuring out and learning what's wrong with people when nobody else can understand what's going on and fixing it. So, does, so kids, this is an, a big thing as well. We're going to get into the kids and the athletic protocol next. Does anybody in here have kids? Michaela does back there. She does it with her kids. It's uh, the kids protocol, getting them to eat healthy or learning what it is. They do great. Uh, so kids, the, the kids protocol is really designed about teaching them that they're eating well. It's not saying you're eating on a diet. It's not creating like weird problems with them in their mental psyche. It's teaching them to eat healthy and teaching them these foods are really good to eat and they're going to make you happy. And kids are very like primarily drawn and driven. So if you teach them that, they're going to say, all right, well, I know cake tastes really good, but I'll try this. And they're also picky eaters most of the time. Some kids won't eat anything, but you can usually get them to eat a hunk of meat and some sort of fruit. Unless your kids decided they're vegetarians already. <laughs> And so the, and the athletic protocol, because we'll do these hand in hand, they're pretty similar. The athlete protocol, is pr the purpose and design for this protocol is to fuel the athlete in a way that's going to give them the optimal level of performance. So the athletic protocol isn't about weight loss or anything like that. It's about performance and driving for performance. The recommended carbohydrates for the athlete protocol for fueling are sweet potatoes, fruits, white rice, wild rice. Those tend to be really well tolerated. Sweet potatoes are very anti-inflammatory, so they help in recovery. So those tend to be a really good option. If you're focusing on, if you're trying to decide between athletic and weight loss, go with weight loss first and then put on the athletic protocol. Unless you're like an endurance runner, then you probably need to go straight to athlete because your training load is so hard. Does anybody have some sort of like marathon thing they're running or endurance type for training? Tough mudder, stuff like that. Oh yeah, tough mudder, that's fun. <laughs> is that today or is it in Sacramento? I saw some Facebook friends today. that were- It might be over there today. Oh yeah. So kids, remember, kids just need to learn to eat healthy. It's not a diet. All they're doing is learning to eat in a way that's going to make them happy, and we have to make sure it seems cool and seems fun. So that's what's going to get kids motivated to actually do it. If you tell them you're eating a diet because I said so, they're going to be like, oh, sh I'll, I'll show you. And then they'll show you what you said. <laughs> and then it'll never happen. So uh, they just need to eat. Kids, it's super easy. Get them eating some sort of meat, some sort of veggie, fruits, potatoes, white, wild rice, sweet potatoes, anything like that. All of those are acceptable. You can fill their plate up with a bunch of different things and pay attention to what they actually eat and then just start putting in the things that they actually eat. So maybe they have a hunk of chicken, they have a little bit of sweet potato, they have some squash because they'll actually eat that and whatever else you can get on their plate that they'll eat. And let them enjoy sweet and fun foods. Don't get them in a construct or a mindset to where they think if they go to little Johnny's house and they eat cake, they're going to be in so much trouble and the bad things are going to happen. So then they have to be at Johnny's and be like, I can't eat cake because it's not okay. And my parents said no. I don't know why. So just make sure that they understand and know that it's okay. And it's not like something that's weird and crazy when they go to other people's houses or when they go out. Michaela, you have kids. How well does it work for you? That's it. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Choices. Potatoes or, you know, broccoli. All you do with broccoli on that one. They don't like broccoli. So 
Yeah, it makes sense. Give them choices and then manipulate them. Like, I know you don't like this, so you're going to pick this. <laughs> yeah, that's the key. Uh, so athlete, because remember, your kids are going to manipulate you as well. They're going to figure it out, and they're going to learn how to, how to put the wool over your eyes as well. So you always got to be a step ahead of the kids. <laughs> so athletes, you want to consume about 1 to 1.5 grams per pound of body weight and protein. And carbohydrates should be about 2 to 3 grams per pound of body weight. You want to creep that up the more activity you're doing. So if you're doing, if you're like a, a CrossFit athlete doing that three times a week, you should probably be in the one and two category. If you're an endurance athlete training for a marathon, it should be in the 1.5 and the three grams category. So just do it based on your activity level. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to start lifting weights. Mm -hmm. Right now I'm just treading on it and all that kind of stuff. My ski and hike. So cardio is fine. But what would I do? Would I do carbs? Like right before I was to go lift weights? I'd say with lifting, it's less carbohydrate focused because it's a lot less just quick like cardio. I would consume your foods after, like right after you get done lifting okay. would be the best time. That's when you want to consume your proteins, Protein. your BCAAs, mm -hmm. your sweet potato from carbohydrates or anything like that would be the best right after. Okay. Uh, an athlete, so supplements for the athlete, someone who's an endurance athlete or a strength athlete or anything like that. You will usually get them on branched-chain amino acids. They're involved in cell replication repair. They decrease muscle damage and soreness. It's significantly more important than a protein shake, unless you're a bro dude and you need your protein shake to make sure you can flex your big muscles. <laughs> the bro dudes, are they got the mirror, and they're like, oh, just drink my protein shake. <laughs> yeah, did anybody see the weight room? <laughs> so make sure BCAAs are significantly more important. They're, they're in, inside protein, but they're the most important piece because they're involved in decreasing muscle damage and soreness. So they're really important for day-to-day -day recovery. 10 to 20 grams a day tends to be really good for the branched chain amino acid consumption. Try to take it a few hours before bed. Don't take, or don't take it a few hours before bed. Give yourself like a long time before bed, three or four or five hours, because it's going to interfere with tryptophan at first and maybe cause problems with sleeping. So this is a study that basically, in so many less words, the key here was when athletes in a double-blind placebo-controlled study, which is like the gold standard, athletes were given this. And what we found was <coughs> branched-chain amino acid intake reduced muscle damage and soreness. So they weren't as sore the next day, and they were able to perform at a higher level than they would have without it. Creatine is another thing we do for athletes. Creatine tends to, it gets a bad rap because football players were like drinking and going out in 100 degree heat because their coaches weren't taking care of them. But really, creatine is completely acceptable. It's going to induce the production of growth hormone, which is basically an anabolic compound that's going to mimic high intensity exercise. So we want to take creatine probably 30 minutes before bed because it's going to stimulate that growth hormone release while you're sleeping because you're recovering and you're, you're getting better. So we want to maybe 10 to 20 grams before bed, drink it with plenty of water, and that should be fine. You don't have to take it before and after workouts. The desired effect is in the production of growth hormone, which is what we want. So we want to take it before bed. Uh, this study basically said that acute creatine loading enhances human growth hormone secretion. So what we see is strength gains are seen at a higher capacity and a higher level after creatine use before bed. And growth hormone is the anabolic compound that everybody tries to like inject themselves with which are the steroids and all that stuff. So it's, it's your recovery potential that you're increasing by just taking creatine instead of doing all the crazy stuff. Because nobody wants to put a needle in their butt. <laughs> Unless you have to. 
Uh, so supplements, let's talk about these next. Everything I, that I talk about here, I do think they have here at National Grocers. Um, the number one thing that we always find people have problems with is sleeping. They, they can't sleep, their body hurts, so magnesium should be one of the most important things you take. Magnesium 30 minutes before bed is going to give you amazing sleep. I've got, got, I had a guy back in the day who was taking two pills of Ambien a night to go to sleep, which is a lot, and we weaned him down to nothing just by getting him on a good dose of magnesium and reducing the intake of those pills over time. And he got to the point to where all he was doing was taking the magnesium. And it's not addictive, it's not something you have to take forever. You start off taking it every day, and then you cut it down to three times a week when you're starting to sleep a lot better and when you feel okay and you feel a lot better. Magnesium, interestingly enough, is a precursor to melatonin which is what a lot of people take to actually sleep. But you could arguably say that just by taking melatonin, your body's gonna get rid of it. It's not gonna actually do anything with it. But by taking magnesium, it forces your body to produce it, which makes it more bioavailable bio and available to use. We use Natural Calm, which is our favorite. The kids call it sleepy time powder. So it's just, uh, it's in like a bucket like this and you put it in hot water before bed and you drink it and then you pass out. Just don't operate heavy machinery on it. <laughs> I do that too. I drink it cold now. <laughs> yeah, I stick ice in it and do it like a shot and it tastes much better. Yeah. <laughs> I think the best flavor is the raspberry lemonade. Oh, yeah. It tends to be the one everybody buys and wants. Vitamin D. So when you think about it, magnesium, you got magnesium, vitamin D, calcium, phosphate, and a lot of these things that are competing to help your bones build and to help your body get to where it needs to be. So vitamin D is important in the absorption of calcium and phosphate. If you're taking a ton of calcium and no magnesium and vitamin D, you're not gonna absorb the calcium like you need to. And that's why the US has some of the highest rates of calcium consumption, but also the highest rates of osteoporosis because we're not focusing on the right things. And recently we found that the dietary recommendations for vitamin D were a lot lower than they should be. So if they say 1,200 international units, you should be taking like three or 4,000. Really though, the best way to get vitamin D is to just go sit in the sun for 10 minutes, maybe 20 minutes max. The darker you are, the longer you have to sit in the sun. You don't wanna sit in there until you burn and, uh, because then you burn and that's bad and then we have skin cancer. But and what we'll usually do is if we're going to like the beach or we're going to get some vitamin D and walking around, we'll go out there for 10 minutes or so, 20 minutes, and then we'll come back and we'll put all the suntan lotion, all that stuff on. Because if you do put suntan lotion on before you actually go out there and absorb it, you'll reduce your absorption rate by like 95%, which is what we don't wanna do because then we're completely missing out on the point of getting that vitamin D. It's the easiest supplement ever, it's free. <laughs> as long as the sun's here, we're good. And if the sun's not, we're in a lot more trouble than just getting vitamin D. Uh, so the next one that we really like is probiotics. And I spend, so I spend a lot of time in microbiology. And what I found was you are as healthy as your gut is. The, basically you have a colony of bacteria in your gut who are constantly battling the good bacteria versus the bad bacteria. And when the good are winning, you're healthy, you don't have autoimmune problems, your psoriasis and stuff like that goes away. When they're not winning and the bad bacteria are winning, you're sick all the time, you have irritable bowel syndrome, things aren't working right, you're inflamed. So we wanna make sure that the good bacteria are colonized and capable of helping us because it's a symbiotic relationship. They live in, they basically built who we are and they allow us to use our nutrients and all that stuff. So when you're looking at probiotics, you wanna make sure that the probiotic you buy and consume has eight billion colony forming units at the minimum. 
You want strains like lactobacillus, which is important, and bifidobacterium. But the most important thing if you do buy a probiotic is that the strains are trademarked because you actually will know and understand what the strain specifically is. If it's not, and we did this back in microbiology, we took a bunch of different probiotic strains and we plated them on plates to see what was actually what. And 95% of the products didn't have anything that they claimed to have on it and had random bacteria that probably weren't healthy anyway. So we wanna make sure, like I have here, that the quality strains have a number. So like B-Lactis, BS01, means that they trademark that strain to specifically be that strain every time. And that means the company's gonna make money trademarking that strain, so you know you can depend on what it is. The company that we like the best is Jaro. Jaro tends to be really high quality. They tend to do, to just have really nice products. We usually get Jaro plus FOS. FOS is fructooligosaccharides, which is a prebiotic. A prebiotic is food for the probiotics. It feeds the probiotics, so that way they're actually healthy and they don't all die. Because if you eat dead bacteria, it doesn't help you at all. Last thing is fish oil. You, your heart health is associated with your fish oil consumption. Your inflammation levels can be reduced by fish oil consumption because the more omega-3 fatty acids we get in, the less inflammation we're going to have because we're gonna, remember like we talked about earlier where the omega-3, omega-6 needs to balance out. We need to take that omega-3 to balance it back out and get off that standard American lifestyle where we're way high in omega-6 and too low in omega-3. So fish oil is your big one. Grass-fed, grass-finished beef is the other way we get these omega-3 fatty acids. Those are probably your two best parameters. Is anyone in here allergic to fish oil? I've gotten that before. Yeah. You are? No, no. I just wanted to ask about, like, I was thinking that actually <coughs> omega-3 would be better than fish oil. So what kind of omega-3? I don't have one. Huh. I, it's, I don't buy a cheap brand. Okay. Do you know the brand? like Nordic Naturals, Carlson's. So usually when it says omega-3, it's usually derived from fish. Okay. So if you look on the back, it'll say from like mackerel, sardines, anchovies, something like that. Uh, so usually omega-3 is derived right from fish. If it's not, then we probably wanna get something that's derived from fish. Um, because we talked a little earlier, but what happens is vegetarian sources of omega-3s are ALA, which is alpha linolenic acid, and they have to convert to DHA and EPA, which is our usable form. And if you convert it, you have like a three to 5% conversion rate, so it's terribly inefficient. So that's why we want the, the cows to eat the grass to convert it for us, and the fish to eat the algae and convert it for us, because then we're set and we win. So which fish oil do you like the best? I like Nordic Naturals, is one of my favorites, and Carlson's. Those tend to be the most, the highest level of fish oil you can get, pharmaceutical grade, that's never rancid, and they've been around for years and years and years. They have it here in the store too, which is nice. <laughs> yeah. I do think uh, if, you, if you're capable of it, consuming liquid tends to be a lot better than a pill because the liquid's gonna go and be absorbed right away. The pill, you still have to break the pill down, you're gonna lose a little bit of that absorption. So liquid, I mean, the Carlson's and Nordic, or the Nordic Naturals taste like lemons. Steph's one of the people who won't eat anything that tastes gross, and she'll, she'll eat that. <laughs> so it's, it's great, and in a liquid thing, you'll get, it's like 30 bucks, and you get like 60 servings sometimes, so it's actually fairly economical too. So we're getting into vices now. Everybody, one of my biggest things used to be like a 25 minute session on just talking about vices. Well, can I eat this? How about vodka? <laughs> so let's, alcohol, uh, obviously, if possible, you want to avoid the consumption of alcohol because it's, especially beer, it's just liquid calories. You don't want to consume a bottle of wine a night. Obviously, we have more problems than that if we have a bottle of wine a night. <laughs> Even though, I mean, red wine's delicious. 
I actually found canned wine the other day and it was really good. Uh, so uh, red wine is acceptable. You know, like a glass a night, five to seven ounces is, is pretty good. A lot of health benefits to wine. You can get away with clear liquors if you can tolerate like tequila, more power to you and drink that. NorCal margaritas we used to do, which is tequila, soda water, fresh lime tends to be pretty well tolerated for people. Uh, tequila comes from agave. <laughs> NorCal's are great, ask Rob Wolf. So uh, when we look at, now let's look at artificial sweeteners a little bit. So there's no really, no, they get a big, a really bad rap. Like, oh, don't take aspartame, don't take sucralose. And when you ask why, I don't know, someone said it causes cancer. Who? I don't know, popular mechanics. That's an auto magazine. Yeah, but they said it and it was on Facebook. Oh, okay, you're right. <laughs> so when we look at this, it's not necessarily the fact that artificial sweeteners are gonna be bad. Well, we look, at the, we look at the compounds that they're made up of. Aspartame or like sucralose, for example, has a chloride molecule in it or a chlorine molecule. We don't know what happens to that molecule when it breaks that down and gets consumed. It might be fine, it might not be, but we don't have enough long-term studies to really understand where it goes and what it does in the body. The reason that this, these things cause problems in terms of artificial sweeteners is the food porn concept. Does anybody know food porn? It's not what you guys are thinking. You're like, food porn? <laughs> Someone's going to lay on the table and they're going to put food on their body. No, but what food porn is, is really, it's when you taste something sweet and it has no calories, your body's going to prepare it to actually consume those calories and it's going to do the same thing it would have done anyway. So you're going to increase your body's glycemic index and you're gonna, your body's going to be prepped and then it's not going to have it, but the same things are going to happen. So you're going to see no weight loss and you're going to see problems in the same association as if you just ate a cup of sugar. And that's the food porn concept. And it's pretty interesting in the way that your body prepares for what's happening just by it being on your tongue. So if you can like get a funnel down your throat, you might be okay because there's no taste. <laughs> but then why would you even eat it? Chocolate. Dark chocolate is pretty acceptable. If you can get like 70% cacao or higher, don't eat like a bar a day. Eat like a couple little cubes, like one or two cubes and you'll be okay, get your sweet fix. If it's 70% or higher, you get a lot of flavonoids and a lot of good antioxidant compounds in it that can be pretty beneficial. So you can get away with some dark chocolate. What's your favorite artificial sweetener? Stevia is probably what I would err on the side of. I find, I mean, this food porn concept is still there, but stevia tends to be pretty well tolerated. I don't see a lot of people experiencing problems with it. Uh, it's, it's, I would call it newish in the fact that it doesn't have like 30, 40, 100 year studies on it. But so far, it seems to be pretty well tolerated and okay. Coffee and tea, rich in flavonoids. We talked about these earlier a little bit, but studies show improved insulin profiles of, with caffeine or coffee consumption, regardless of caffeinated or not, up to six cups a day. So you don't have to go on these coffee detox diets unless you're doing it as a crutch. If you wake up and you're like, oh my God, I'm gonna die, and you drink six cups of coffee, and then by like 10, PM, 10 a.m. you're like, oh God, I'm gonna die again, you drink six more cups of coffee, then we have a problem. But if you're just waking up having a cup, you have a cup around like 3 p.m. or whatever, maybe one or two, three, and up to six cups a day, you tend to be okay and it's not a problem. We just don't want it to be a crutch because we're not sleeping well. And remember, nothing added to it, black coffee, maybe some coconut creamer or some grass-fed grass finish creamer. Okay, so let's talk about science a little bit. Everybody always asks about, well, why, why don't people eat gluten? What's wrong with gluten nowadays? Why can't we eat dairy? What's going on with that kind of stuff? And so what's happening is, in so many fewer words than that's on this slide, gluten sensitivity and celiac even in modern culture 
happens because some people aren't necessarily immunologically <coughs> adapted to consume the protein that's found in gluten, which is called gliadin. And so what really happens is, and let's go to the picture because it's way better. What happens is you have like your little gluten molecule, your gliadin proteins up here floating around, and you've got your, basically like your tissue transglutaminase, which all it does is it modifies the protein to be able to be usable and pass through like your tight junctions in your body. And so when, you're, when your body starts modifying those things, what happens is the newly bound peptides, because they're now modified to move through those junctions, the, your killer T cells, your CD4 and your CD8 T cells, start targeting it. And when they target it, they're not gonna forget. It's your body's immune reaction to be able to see. That's why we get vaccines, because your body remembers it. Same thing here, as soon as it targets it and sees it, it's gonna continuously attack that protein molecule forever. And that's why we start getting the problems in our guts, why we feel sick, and why we start punching holes in, in the gut itself. And so what happens in this picture is, the proteins here, the tissue transglutaminase modifies it. The T cells start to identify and spot those proteins as they pass through the junctions. And then they just continuously attack the cell itself. And then all of a sudden you get this little thing, which it's basically your junctions and your cells falling apart and dying. And so you're starting to get that poop in your blood problem where you have punched a hole in your gut. And your gut is no longer a tight junction anymore. It's allowing things that shouldn't be in there to flow in and out because it's attacking itself due to those proteins or those molecules. Some people, this is a normal, basically the, uh, uh, the middle section of the small intestine. This is a normal one. It looks like nice and smooth, like little fingers or whatever. This is a celiac version where it's just a jumbled, inflamed mess. And so this can be someone who's a, who has celiac disease, maybe someone who has psoriasis, someone who's suffering from MS or any of those problems. This could be the problem they're experiencing in a similar way. Just their, their intestines have had a hole punched in them and it's causing a cascading inflammatory problem throughout the whole body. So dairy, the next thing that we look at is dairy. Why, why would dairy be a problem? Why are people all of a sudden like saying dairy's bad for us or whatever? What it is is lactose, which is the sugar found in dairy, is not necessarily well tolerated by everybody. Some people can. Uh, some peop most of us, though, lose the enzyme lactase at about age two, which allows us to digest lactose and consume dairy without any problems. So those who lose that lactase enzyme lose the ability to digest it and they create that intolerance problem. And that's why we're not able to consume and eat it. Some people have no idea. They're like 30 and figure it out. They're like, wow, why didn't I know this? I've hated my life whenever I consume milk forever. Uh, casein can also cause a problem in the same way that the gliadin protein found in gluten can cause problems. So it can cause that intolerance or allergy as it's a foreign protein. Your body sees it, thinks it's a foreign invader, continuously attacks it until you punch that hole in your gut. The other things that can cause problems in terms of dairy is because there's growth promoters like IGF-1 and other factors that are added into milk, if it's not grass-fed and grass-finished, it can cause problems with acne and it can cause problems with antibiotic resistance in children and a lot of those things. So we want to make sure that if we are consuming dairy, we consume grass-fed, grass-finished dairy just like we do with the beef because it's going to be a lot better tolerated. You're going to be less likely to spot, likely to spot it as a foreign invader and you're gonna get the omega-3s out of it, so you're gonna reduce inflammation. Any questions on that? Yeah. So I really don't drink cow's milk anymore, but I love cheese of all kinds. Yeah. And how so, I can tolerate cheese, but I really don't tolerate the cow's milk. Yeah, cheese is, it's fermented, and it's just born in a different way through bacterial fermentation. So I think cheese is, it's mm -hmm. a little bit better tolerated. You can even get grass-fed, grass-finished cheese that works really well. And 
cheeses, it tends to be cheese and goat's milk tend to be actually okay a lot of the time, but it's probably just the product of like the bacteria producing it and the way cheese is made that makes it more, I guess, better tolerated. It's really interesting, the human body and the way it works. You might consume the dairy and it has everything. Dairy is converted and made into cheese. Now there's no problems associated with it. What happened in the middle? We can make conjecture and hypothesis, but we really don't have a clear picture. It could be the ad adaptation and the modification of the proteins. It could be the modification of some of the carbohydrates in the cheese. Like maybe there's, and one of the interesting theories might be, okay, because cheese is a fermented product, the bacteria are eating the, the sugars found in the milk. Maybe because they ate that sugar, I didn't have to convert that sugar. So now I can tolerate the cheese because they took care of it for me. And is that the same then with yogurt? Like, I, I don't like all the sugary yogurts. Mm -hmm. I eat the Greek yogurt sometimes. Yeah, it'd be pretty but similar. I'm fine with that. Yeah, and it's because basically the bacteria are doing the work for you is what I would, my hypothesis would be. <laughs> They're eating the sugar for you, producing it, fermenting it, and making the byproduct of it. So when people say no dairy, it's like, I get some like, wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah, I was telling these guys earlier, there's like 9,765 million different opinions and parameters and all this stuff, and they're usually just trying to sell you stuff. Uh, but, and the hardest thing is figuring out what makes sense and what's, what makes you feel okay. And that's the biggest thing we have to pursue is, okay, I ate the cheese, I feel okay, but Dr. Josh says that I shouldn't do it, and he's on Popular Mechanics, shoot. And you just say, okay, I feel, I feel good, so I'm going to keep eating it until it makes me feel bad, or until my progress stops, or I'm not losing weight, or something happens. It's really nobody can learn and identify your body as well as you can, or if you have someone who will ask you like 350 questions about it and really hammer down what's going on. Um, so legumes, which are like beans, peanuts, a lot of that stuff, proteins that aren't necessarily as good as like animal-style proteins. The problems we see with these, and the reason I tend to avoid them, is because they are poisonous unless they're cooked. Once they're cooked, they still maintain a trace amount, but it's enough to where you can consume it and not die, obviously. The, the big problem, though, that I find with beans, and the reason I don't think they're a, a high-level protein or a high-level source, is they contain phytates. And what those are is they bind to trace minerals, like your iron and zinc, and they make them unavailable. So when you consume it, you just poop it out. Nothing happens. You don't get those minerals. Nothing happens. And you're not available to use this. So you're just consuming a filler, which is something we have to do if we're vegan or vegetarian. But if we're not, we can consume much better proteins and get much better stuff from other food sources. Next is, we'll talk about a little bit, is the epigenetics of health. Is anybody familiar with epigenetic markers, parameters, ideas? So when I took epigenetics for the first time in college, it was like this new thing back in the day, and they were like, we're going to do this course where we look at studies, and we're just, we don't know yet. We're going to figure it out. But now we've, we've learned so much about the epigenome, and what it means is it's your genome on top of your genome. And in a simplistic sense, it's basically imagine a bunch of switches that turn on and off, and they make things fire in your genes. And then they make things fire in your children's genes. And so they have an effect on not only you, but your children. So say you're a 30-year smoker, and the smoker gene's on. Now your children are going to have the smoker gene on. Say you've been obese your whole life, and the obesity gene's on. Now your children have an obesity gene on. So everything that we do and consume and operate around in our adult life or our whole life is going to be a parameter that gets passed on to our children. And it's because we're modifying the, our DNA basically on that epigenome. You're turning things on or off based on your lifestyle decisions and choices. So it's really interesting to know now that the decisions we make today will have an effect on our children and probably our children's children. So that's 
that's pretty much everything I have for today. It's really, like I talked about in the beginning, it's really about simplistic ways to introduce our diet and make it in a way that we can actually do it and be okay doing it. If you guys wanna know more, I want a copy of this, the slide deck I use since we couldn't use the TV, just shoot me an email. It's chandler at stoneagefuel.com. Uh, this is my, if you guys can see it, it's like 100 miles away. Uh, if you go to stoneagefuel.com, we have a section called the community blog. Where we post usually a blog a day about all kinds of random different things that we get questions asked about. Oh, if you, was that? Will that be on the blog? No. Uh, I'll post it on there. I'll put it on there tonight so you guys can pull it off. Um, if you haven't, we have like a five-part healthy eating series we put on email and Facebook Messenger you can download. If you go to Facebook Messenger and just comment nutrition, message us that, it'll automatically send it to you. Uh, shoot me an email if you have questions about anything. Our blog probably has 550,000 different blogs about everything you could possibly think of, so you could go through that for days. Our Facebook page and our YouTube channel have videos about almost everything. And then I'm available via email. You can mess Facebook message our page. We're pretty responsive. If we don't respond to you, just ping us and say, hey, you forgot about me, jerks. <laughs>